Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Almost from the day he was elected, certainly from the day he took office, people have been talking about the impeachment of Donald Trump. His basic failure to divest his business holdings, his refusal to abide by ethical norms, nepotism, cronyism, his odd and still not fully known relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin, and his disregard for the intelligence community have all stoked the fires. But are these legitimate grounds for impeachment as laid out by the Constitution? What kind of constitutional crisis might be precipitated by such efforts? And how do we define political versus legal impeachment? And would that even matter? After all, so much of what our founders did was designed as a bulwark against the corruption that we see playing out each and every day at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. To try and put all of this rhetoric in context, I'm joined by veteran constitutional lawyer Ron Fine. Ron Fine is a constitutional lawyer who previously served as assistant regional counsel in the U.S. EPA. He appears regularly on television and on the op-ed pages of the Washington Post commenting on constitutional matters. And it is my pleasure to welcome Ron Fine here to talk about his book, the Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Ron Fine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So much of what we look at, it seems, with respect to possible grounds for impeachment, seems like what would be considered circumstantial evidence in a court of law. Does that matter when we talk about impeachment? It's a good question because many people are under the misunderstanding that impeachment is about prosecutable crimes that uh, can be the grounds for conviction in a federal criminal trial. And there's certainly an overlap, but impeachment is not just about those types of offenses. And in a federal criminal trial, as you uh, gave the example, some types of evidence are subject to rules that would prevent it from being put before a jury. So there are rules that law students learn about hearsay evidence or about copies of documents and so forth, uh, some of which would not be admissible in a federal criminal trial. Uh, but that's totally irrelevant in an impeachment proceeding. Congress in impeachment hearings can consider any evidence that it thinks is relevant. And that includes uh, you know, whether it comes out of the president's own mouth on Twitter or if it's uh, you know, substantiated reports coming from others, it's for Congress to decide what type of evidence is admissible in an impeachment hearing. And doesn't that, though, make the impeachment process an entirely political process on the other extreme and, and untether it from legal scholarship and legal analysis in determining what is and isn't impeachable with respect to the Constitution? Impeachment is a mix of legal and political. So it's entrusted to Congress by the Constitution, which means that it is certainly uh, somewhat political in nature, but there are legal standards as well. And it would be an abuse uh, for Congress to treat it as a 100% political process. And uh, Gerald Ford famously said that an impeachable offense is whatever Congress decides it to be. And as a description of raw power that may be accurate, but to be faithful to its constitutional role, Congress needs to take seriously uh, the standard that is set forth in the Constitution of high crimes or misdemeanors. What that means, how we interpret high crimes or misdemeanors, is grounded by constitutional history uh, and informed by 
Uh, it can be informed by laws that Congress has passed, but it's also informed by Congress's own precedent in past impeachment proceedings. And we have in 200 years of history and scholarship on what that means, and that can help Congress understand the, the legal bases for impeachment. When we look at what the founders may have intended with respect to impeachment, talk a little bit about that and, and what we know about what they had in mind. A lot of what the founders intended for impeachment uh, comes from the debates at the Constitutional Convention, where they discussed different ways of, of phrasing the impeachment clause, and they discussed ways that would make it very broad and ways that would make it much narrower. They settled on the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, which they didn't invent out of nowhere. That phrase actually comes from England, where Parliament had a long history of impeaching officials. And so that whole history of what were high crimes and misdemeanors in England uh, forms sort of the prehistory of the Constitution. But the discussions in the constitutional debates themselves are also really informative. And that's how we, we know, for example, that things like violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause or abusing the pardon power are impeachable offenses. And then the, the final source uh, that is really relevant is Congress, in essence, makes its own precedent through its impeachment proceedings over the past 231 years. And we have uh, a long history now that gives us a, a sense of how Congress has historically interpreted the impeachment power. What we know that now, though, is that we are so much more divided than we have been at so many times in our history. And to the extent the impeachment process becomes a political process and is not backed up by solid legal positioning, it makes the process of impeachment arguably so much more flimsy. I, I agree that that is a danger. And one of the goals in our book is to set forth uh, neutral, legal, and constitutional grounds for uh, eight offenses that we have identified that are grounds for impeachment hearings. These are not based on partisan political disagreements about policy. You're not going to see anything about uh, tax policy or health care policy because these are not uh, these are not about partisan political issues, but rather about solid legal and constitutional arguments for why these offenses uh, reach the standards of high crimes and misdemeanors. Is this undermined in some respects by the fact that talk about impeachment began so early in this presidency? The reason that talk about impeachment began so early in this presidency is that uh, even before he took office, uh, it was clear that Trump was headed for an impeachable offense, and that is violating the emoluments clauses of the Constitution. So these are provisions that prohibit uh, federal officials, including the president, from taking uh, payments from foreign governments and from the, the federal government beyond his, his salary. And through his businesses, it was clear from the day of the election that if Trump didn't take effective action, he would be in violation of these provisions from the moment he took the oath of office. He chose to ignore the advice that was given to him during the transition period and to make only uh, very superficial measures to separate himself from his businesses. But the fact is, he began committing an impeachable offense um, on the day of the inauguration and the moment he took the oath of office. And so the discussion of impeachment was entirely appropriate. What precedent do we have, though, for enforcement of these emoluments clauses? What's fascinating about that is that no previous president 
has thought to trample on the emoluments clauses. And many previous presidents have been men of great wealth who owned businesses, uh, and they all took action, different forms, but to, to separate themselves from businesses to avoid precisely these problems. And, you know, the famous example, of course, is Jimmy Carter selling off a peanut farm in Georgia. Uh, but we've never had a president who uh, just trampled on the emoluments clauses this way. And so we, we can't point to a previous president who was you know, impeached for this because none of them uh, dared to go this far. And have any other officials below the president ever been charged under the emoluments clause? What's interesting about the emoluments clause is that it is not a criminal violation. So it's not something that you could be uh, charged and you know and prosecuted and put in prison for violating. It's a it's a constitutional violation, and it does apply to federal officials. And it's been uh, applied in in many cases um, to lower federal officials um, or, or even uh, some higher ranking ones, including uh, presidents who have sought opinions as to whether they could. Uh, constitutionally receive payments of, of various sorts. And so there, there's a long history of, um, of you know, officials in, say, the Department of Justice giving a written opinion um, as to whether a president uh, could or, or could not, uh, or, or lower officials, it's happened even more often, take certain types of, of payments. Um, but what we have never seen is a person attempting to simultaneously own a network of far-flung businesses, both in foreign countries and uh, here in the U.S., doing extensive business with foreign governments and uh, simultaneously occupying the Oval Office. And talk about the second part of that, which is really soliciting foreign aid, foreign contributions during the campaign, be they from the Russians, the Saudis, or anybody else. Yeah, this is one of the areas where uh, there's certainly more information that could come to public light that would help round out the factual record. But what we know already is that during the 2016 election campaign, uh, very senior members of the uh, Trump campaign met with uh, Russian operatives, Russian uh, intelligence uh, operatives and, and other officials, uh, in an effort to solicit Russian government assistance in the election campaign. And that's a violation of federal criminal law, um, the Federal Election Campaign Act. It's also a type of um, abuse of the electoral process that was described by the founders as a, a ground for impeachment. We have suggestive evidence indicating that the president uh, knew about the meeting uh, if not beforehand, certainly immediately afterwards. And we have definitive evidence that the president uh, helped cover it up uh, after the fact, after uh, it, it finally came to light in 2017. And so while there is certainly the possibility that we could learn more about it that would help uh, fill in a couple of the blanks, we already have enough evidence to start the, uh, the, the, the fact-gathering impeachment hearings that would help bring that out. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the obstruction of justice aspect of this. You spend a lot of time talking about that in the book. Yeah, it's an important one. And it's because it's, it's something that the president started almost immediately after taking office. And, and that began when he invited uh, Jim Comey at the time, the FBI director, to a private dinner at the White House and demanded his loyalty. And uh, over the course of 2017, uh, Trump first... Uh, attempted to um, sweet-talk Comey and then cajoled him, 
pressured him and finally fired him uh, in an effort to stop investigations that were getting too close to Trump, uh, including of both himself and also of some of his associates. And it didn't stop there with the Comey firing. He's uh, used various methods at his disposal to attempt to pressure federal government officials and Congress and others into stopping or uh, frustrating or impeding the course of these investigations. And that's obviously part of what the special counsel is looking into, but quite apart from whether it violates criminal statutes, it's certainly an abuse of uh, presidential power for Trump to be attempting to stop investigations in this way. Given the investigation that is ongoing from the special counsel, should that be the focus at this point? And should some of these other additional efforts to investigate some of these things be on hold until then? No, and that, that's for several reasons. First of all, of the eight grounds for impeachment hearings that we've identified, only two of them are within the special counsel's purview. So, for example, Trump's a continuous violation of the Foreign Emoluments Clause is not something that the special counsel is appointed to investigate. And in fact, he couldn't be because he is a federal prosecutor and it's not a prosecutable crime. And to say that these things should all be put on hold uh, is to say that they don't matter and, and it emboldens uh, the president to continue violating them. But what's also more important is that we have to remember that an impeachment investigation into president's corruption and abuses of power is, is different than a federal prosecution. A federal prosecution is backwards looking. It looks at what the president has done uh, and determines whether uh, it's worthy of criminal prosecution and punishment. But the purpose of impeachment is also protective to protect the country from uh, future abuses that a lawless president might contribute. And every day that we have not started impeachment proceedings, we put the country at, at further risk. What about the argument that putting forth impeachment proceedings would create some kind of constitutional crisis? You know, the, the founders of the Constitution provided impeachment as a tool to deal with a lawless president. It's not a constitutional crisis. It's the very mechanism that the founders of this country provided for dealing with a president like Trump. So as, uh, as the, the forward to our book says, impeachment is not a constitutional crisis. It's the cure for a constitutional crisis. Talk a little bit about the degree to which it would essentially freeze so much of, of any kind of government operation while that procedure was going forth in a situation like we find ourselves in today. Yeah, so impeachment definitely mixes uh, law and politics, and it's uh, certainly the case that, that there's a, a political aspect to it, and it, it will require some time uh, from Congress. But it's not at all true that it would freeze government functioning, and that didn't happen in 1974. It didn't happen in 1998 uh, during the Clinton impeachment hearings, and that's partly because Congress has developed some streamlined procedures to deal with impeachment charges, where it begins with a House Judiciary Committee uh, investigation, and the rest of the House can go about doing everything else that they're doing while the House Judiciary Committee starts the uh, impeachment hearings. That's as far as the Richard Nixon impeachment proceedings got, because once the House Judiciary Committee approved articles of impeachment, Nixon resigned. But if it goes beyond that, then the entire House uh, can take a, a vote on impeachment uh, based on 
the recommendations of the Judiciary Committee. That doesn't take that long. And then the trial in the Senate, I mean, it's certainly going to occupy some of the Senate's time, but given some of the other things that the Senate has seen focused, uh, seen fit to focus on uh, in recent years, uh, it, it's a, a worthy and important uh, task that will uh, pay dividends in, uh, in supporting the rule of law in the future. Is there a danger that we set a precedent that we are too quick to use the impeachment process in a political context? I think there's the opposite danger, that if we don't uh, start the impeachment process, what we've done is emboldened not only Trump but also future presidents to understand that they can get away with uh, violating the Constitution and uh, violating the law without any repercussions. And by... Uh, sitting on our hands as a country and not beginning impeachment proceedings, we send that message to presidents, including some who may be more effective in their uh, ability to accomplish things because of a greater ability to focus day to day than Trump. And we, we weaken the very tool that the founders put in the Constitution to help restrain the president from turning uh, into a tyrant. You spend some time in the book talking about the pardon powers of the president. Talk a little bit about that as it relates to potential impeachment and really how it relates to the president, maybe, uh, as Trump has claimed, being able to pardon himself. Yeah, so the, the Constitution gives the president the power to pardon federal crimes, and it is certainly a broad power, but it is not without limits. And one of the issues that came up in the constitutional debates was that uh, George Mason, who was uh, an opponent of the Constitution, uh, worried that it would enable the president to pardon those who were close to him uh, and turn into a, a monarch by being able to basically uh, say, you can do whatever you want and I'll pardon you. And James Madison, who was called the father of the Constitution and, and later became the president, had a very simple answer to that. He basically said that if the, the president shelters uh, people who are close to him in this manner, then he can be impeached and removed from office. And so if the president uh, attempts to use the pardon power uh, to, uh, to undermine the ability of the, the, the courts to, um, to, to prosecute and, and hear cases on serious legal violations, that's a clear ground for Congress to move forward with impeachment proceedings. But we, we've actually already gotten there. Uh, e even before uh, the president starts pardoning people like you know Manafort or, or Flynn, as the case may be, because Trump's very first pardon of Sheriff Joe Arpaio of Arizona actually crossed uh, the constitutional line and in many ways was a, a test run for how the, the president might uh, misuse the pardon power in the future. How, as you say it, how did it cross that so, line? Yeah, so uh, the pardon of Joe Arpaio was the very first time in our nation's entire history where a president pardoned a government official. Uh, Joe Arpaio had been the, the sheriff of a county in Arizona, uh, a government official for violating a court order. Um, so what, what Arpaio had done was he had been convicted of criminal contempt of court for violating a court order to stop violating the constitutional rights of Latino drivers. And when Trump pardoned him and actually spoke approvingly of what Arpaio had done, uh, he undermined the due process of law. And, and this is why. When people have their constitutional rights violated, their, their recourse is the courts. 
and you go to court and you say my constitutional rights were violated and if the court agrees uh, it issues an injunction to the government official and says stop doing that and the thing is that what happens if the official ignores the court order well then he can be prosecuted for criminal contempt of court but if the president can issue a get out of jail free card to any government official who violates individuals' constitutional rights and just ignores court orders, then that ability of the courts to protect constitutional rights is made into a joke, and that means that those rights themselves are made into a joke. And you make the point that undermining equal protection in that way also is unconstitutional. Yeah, so, you know, Trump has done many things that, that sort of blend together under different legal headings uh, that um, all constitute the, the same sort of pattern of conduct. But if you look at, for example, his actions um, around Charlottesville last year, um, when he basically uh, talked about the, the very fine people on both sides of the, the neo-Nazi march, uh, and, and put that in the pattern of his other conduct of him sh- retweeting uh, anti-Muslim inflammatory videos or giving a, a speech um, advocating that the military commit war crimes or uh, suggesting to police officers that they should be rough with suspects that they've arrested. When you put that all together, it adds up to a, a pattern of undermining the equal protection of the laws. And combined with, for example, the, the pardon of Joe Arpaio, um, no previous president has ever tested these principles as severely. So we don't have a directly applicable president, uh, precedent, but it's an abuse of public trust that uh, justifies congressional impeachment hearings. How should we look at broad-based corruption within the government, not just from the president, but from others in in government, an almost epidemic of corruption? And how should we view that within this broader context of impeachment that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, this is a remarkably corrupt administration. Certainly, most administrations have, you know, a corruption scandal or two, um, some uh, more than others. Uh, so, uh, you know, we need to not be naive about um, the, the possibility of corruption in government. But this administration goes far beyond anything we've seen in the past. And I think that comes straight from the top, which is that when the, the fish's head is rotten, um, the rest of it rots. And what Trump has done since day one is show that he doesn't care about legal or sort of norm-based restraints on corruption in government. And he's appointed people, uh, grifters uh, like himself, who also don't care. And uh, that's, uh, again, a key reason why we need to take action uh, to to not only you know stop the exact conduct that he's doing, but to remove him from office, to, to send a message that this is not the, the type of presidency that uh, the Constitution will tolerate, or using it as a, a basis for personal enrichment. To what extent should we look at impeachment versus looking at the political process, the midterms that are coming up, the impact that they might have in putting some kind of a halt to this, and of course uh, a presidential election coming up? Uh, it seems like far away, but uh, that next uh, two years will go quickly. Well, with a president with a you know four-year term, um, the, the the question uh, of whether and, and when to impeach that president basically comes down to a calculation of the severity of what he's done and the risk of what he's likely to do in the future. And 
what we have seen with Trump is that he will do whatever he can get away with. And right now he's getting away with an awful lot. And by enabling him to remain in the Oval Office, not only continuing his corruption and obstruction of justice, but also as a dangerously erratic uh, commander-in-chief with um, with abilities uh, to you know, launch nuclear strikes uh, in response to uh, t- baiting uh, on Twitter, uh, we're facing severe risks uh, to our constitutional democracy that go beyond normal partisan disagreements about you know, what should tax policy be or what should health care policy be. And that's why we need to move forward with impeachment proceedings to, uh, to, to reinforce the rule of law. Of course, some would argue that that erratic behavior, what, what some of us would perceive as erratic behavior regarding foreign policy, is, is in fact a policy decision and not necessarily one that, that rises to the level of, of discussing impeachment. Look, you could imagine, uh, hypothetically, a president who engaged in some sort of complicated strategic gamesmanship of making uh, you know, unhinged threats uh, to, to seem like a, a nuclear madman as a way of achieving some sort of three-dimensional geopolitical chess. But let's be honest, that's not Trump. All the <laughs> evidence that we've got from uh, the people who've been close to him, his own national security advisor, his own secretary of state, have called him a moron and an idiot who doesn't understand the consequences of his actions. And it really falls under a, a rubric of reckless endangerment. Uh, which, as uh, commander-in-chief of the, the armed forces, uh, is reminiscent of something that a, a soldier could get court-martialed for, and, and soldiers have been court-martialed for reckless endangerment, which is conduct that's likely to bring about a great physical harm that's done with reckless or wanton disregard for the consequences. And that seems to be what's happening with Trump. And, and finally, Ron, given the nature of impeachment as the political part of a process, as we talked about earlier, and given the extreme divisiveness in the country right now, how would you see impeachment playing out as it, as it plays in politics and in the country? I mean, people talk about people taking to the streets, if Trump supporters taking to the streets if, if an impeachment process was put in place. Well, I think it's important to have some historical perspective on this, and, and looking at the Richard Nixon uh, impeachment hearings is a, a good starting point. Uh, on the day that Nixon resigned, 25% of the, the public supported him staying in office. So there's always going to be uh, some residual uh, of, of people who will, you know, who will never uh, support uh, impeachment. Um, but right now, if you look at the public support for impeachment, it's at a little less than 50%, which might seem like, okay, that's not very much, it's less than half. But if you compare it to where we were with the Nixon impeachment proceedings at the same stage, which is to say before congressional impeachment hearings have even begun, it's actually considerably more popular uh, to impeach Trump than it was to impeach Richard Nixon at the same stage of the process. So, yes, I think it would be a you know, difficult national process, but I think that congressional impeachment hearings would be a national process of education and bring the country together on this issue as they did with Richard Nixon. Of course, some have argued that if, if something like Fox News had existed or the, the drumbeat and the cocoon of the conservative media had existed at the time of Richard Nixon, that his resignation and or impeachment would have been a very different thing. Well, who knows with counterfactual alternative histories, but uh, 
I think the uh, history of the Nixon impeachment proceedings shows that there certainly was a lot of division um, during the process. But as the evidence came out and became overwhelming, and as the American people saw it playing out on, on television as congressmen uh, took their job seriously and heard serious factual and legal arguments for why impeachment was justified, that the country came together and, and came to support impeachment. And I, I have faith in the American people that we would in this case, too. Ron Fine. The book is The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Ron, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.